Finders New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And it's not the old Vine Pair Podcast because Joanna's out on vacation. Because we actually have a guest host this yes. week. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm going to butcher her fucking last name because I, I, I just got freaked out about it. It's Oset Babor <laughs> Winter. I hate messing up people's names, Oset. Well, did I do it well? You did it well. That's it's better than <sighs> not trying at all. So I know, and she's the managing editor of Vine Pair. We're very lucky to have her. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. So and you've been with Vine Pair now for how many months? It's been about a month and a half, getting into two. Yeah, she's still getting used to it. Basically, just me. Yeah, there's a learning curve there. I can promise See, you. Oset doesn't know that I like I I, I I fuck with people shamelessly and. She's getting used to it now, I feel like. I feel like she's just, like, getting used to it. The, the um, good news for you on this podcast, Oset, is that I'm Adam's favorite. It's usually exactly we go so after. You're, you're, yeah. you're good. <laughs> I am here to be as helpful as I can be. <laughs> so, uh, Oset, what we usually do to start off these podcasts mm-hmm. is ask people what they've been drinking this week. But I don't want to do that yet. Because I do want to talk really quickly about Zach's piece that oh, he published no. today when we're recording about baseball and wine. And Zach thought it was actually pretty good. Oh, thank you. That's, that's a surprise. That, that needs a lot coming from you. Yeah, no, I'm no, sure no. That, what I'm, I'm sure I don't mean to sound surprised. What I'm saying is like I actually I actually got the, like the connection. I think is really smart, and you know how much I hate baseball. <laughs> it's true, and how much but you I love thought wine. It was a smart so connection. It's probably a weird connection, but yeah. Thank you. It's worth a read. Did you edit it? I did, in fact, edit it. <laughs> that's what I figured. <laughs> No, I mean, it was I'm much not, better than usual. Uh, I am not much of a baseball fan either, but my brother-in-law and sister, future sister-in-law, work for the Red Sox, and so they I've, both do. They both do. Yes, oh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real Red Sox family. So I've been to Fenway a couple of times, and I have no idea what's going on. But I actually really enjoy being at Fenway. So Zach, do you want to lay out your 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 sort of your thesis? I thought it was a good one. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think what I would say is that the the basic crux of what what first prompted this thought in me was um, actually some stuff we've talked about on the podcast in the last couple of months, which was um, sort of the this ongoing consternation in wine about uh, struggles attracting millennial drinkers in particular, and to some extent, um, mm-hmm. Gen Z drinkers as well. And then sort of thinking about how for the last little while, I've been hearing a lot of the same things about baseball, that baseball has really struggled to connect to younger consumers and if it was only just that like hey here are two things that i like that both struggle with younger people i don't know that there would have been much to say there other than just like there's lots of things that are probably struggling to attract um you know younger people and and what made the connection in me was that i think as the piece lays out baseball and wine share a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses and weirdly seem to be intent on leaning into what I would say are the weaknesses uh, at the expense of the strengths. And and in, in particular, both show this real obsession with uh, the past. And while yeah. I have, a, you know, a good, uh, an affinity for both old wine and older baseball to some extent, I think that when you view either category through that lens, through the lens of the, the best is mm-hmm. in the past, you really alienate people who, for whatever reason, can't access that. In the case of baseball, because they don't have a fucking time machine. And in the case of wine, they don't have thousands of dollars to spend on 50-year-old bottles, or they don't happen to have, you know, friends or family who have, you know, collections that go back that far. And 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 so you you just kind of convince people that if they want to participate in this, 
you know, in either of these categories that they're kind of getting a pale imitation of the best of it. And, and baseball is guilty of this in a very particular way that I lay out, I think, in the piece of just sort of continuing mm-hmm. to tout players who in some cases have been dead for nearly a decade as the greatest of all time in a way that is you know, quite honestly, pretty ridiculous when you think about like what everything that has changed in sports of all of all kinds since the 1920s and 30s when Babe Ruth played. And like, it, so so that kind of got me going on this whole topic. Yeah, I thought it was, you know, it's interesting because I hadn't really realized that that there were these conversations until recently. I saw like a few like op-eds people had written, like we should nationalize baseball. We should figure out how to save baseball. And I, I actually, because I think also my brother's a massive baseball fan and he's a Braves fan and they won the world series last year. I kind of was like, Oh, maybe baseball's in a good spot. You know, I don't, I didn't know. <laughs> you know I was like, Oh, I, maybe I'm the only one that doesn't like it, but uh, it's good to see that I'm not in the minority. <laughs> I thought <it> was, <laughs> I'm on trend. I thought it was interesting, Zach, that you had that bit about how the players that are being highlighted in a lot of these, you know, just franchises and teams in general are like people that have been retired or like just they're from a separate generation, which yeah. is really interesting because it echoes the wines that a lot of, I think people harken back to. And it's yep. just, it's an interesting parallel because it just emphasizes the like, okay, so are the glory days over. Yeah. I thought that was really good too. And I think the last piece of this I want to mention, cause I didn't quite get to, I think fully articulating this in the piece just due to kind of space limits, but, but I think there's a way that both wine and baseball can use their history as a selling point and as a strength and to connect what's going on presently to the past, I think is actually very powerful that baseball, which, which, you know, to be fair, football and basketball to some extent have and other sports as well, have the ability to say, you know, this player is, is the modern day, you know, uh, Mike Trout is the modern day Willie Mays to use an example that's been given many times or Shohei Otani is the modern day Babe Ruth and guys who both pitch. Who are those people? Well, we're not gonna, we don't have time to, for me to explain baseball to you. Adam. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell um, you either. <laughs> but but the point is that the eight of you who care about baseball who are listening to this will know what I'm saying. But but the point is that baseball can and and wine can similarly say you know wine has this incredible history and we certainly talk about its history or we feel the the weight of its history in many different ways throughout uh-huh. throughout wine. But but when you when you kind of consistently demand that. A people appreciate you know know a lot about the past to appreciate the present and the future. You know that's just a big burden to put to lay at people's feet for the most part. And inevitably, you kind of give off at least the air that you are denigrating the present and future to sort of prop up the past. And that I think is the part that is really unfortunate because in both cases, in baseball's case and in wine's case. This is unquestionably the best time in history for either. Like the quality of player in Major League Baseball has never been higher. And the quality of wine widely available on the market has never been higher. And we should be celebrating those things, not using the past as a cudgel against the present and the future. Very melody point. And with that, Oset, what did you drink this week? Oh, wow. I'm going first. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, this week, actually, I leaned more in the NA space, if I'm being honest. I have a bottle. I don't think we've ever had anyone say their drink was an NA drink if it wasn't dry January. Yeah, I like I like an NA cocktail. I, know, I make yeah. A, yeah, making her her podcast debut with an <laughs> NA drink. <laughs> so I well, okay. Can I say like two separate? Yeah, of course. Okay, yeah. so the first was that I have a bottle of Figlia in my fridge that I've been making my way through. It's um, a non-alcoholic aperitif, and okay. it's really cardamom and rose forward, which as a Middle Eastern gal, I really enjoy. And so I just do 
like a shot of it with some tonic and like a lemon. I don't think I've ever had Figlia. It's really, really lovely. Um, and I enjoy it a lot. I was sent a bottle some time ago and have been making my way through it and just really enjoy having it as a spritz while I'm cooking. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's yeah. smart. Right. If I just like got home from work and I'm like actually taking a night off of drinking, but I still want to have something that feels special, I'll yeah. do that or I'll do a Casamara Club. Those are the two like NA things that I do a lot at home. Cool. Have you had the Casamara Club sodas? I have not. They're very good. They're they're um, Amaro leisure sodas. So they're non-alcoholic, but they're made with the same botanicals that end up in Amaro. And there's a couple of different flavors. They're out of Detroit. They are phenomenal. Cool. Um, so yeah, that. And then Katie and I went to Chez Zoo, which is the new cocktail bar on top of Zuzu's uh, near Hudson Yards. And I had a pickle spritz, mm. which was wonderful. Right. It was very it was very pickle juice forward. It was just like champagne, <laughs> pickle juice, vermouth. It was delightful. I really enjoyed it. But I also love like those Trader Joe's pickle flavored chips and stuff like I just enjoy oh, I love pickle flavors yeah I just like pickle everything and so that was the other thing that I had this week that I really enjoyed never been to Zuzu's either yeah it's wow. fairly it's fairly new and Shezu opened very very recently but um yeah it was really fun it's a really kind of fun like tiki vibe but we're not saying tiki anymore so it's not interesting we had a whole conversation about that yesterday but we'll get to that in a second uh <laughs> so Zach what about you well, I think the the two things noteworthy for me, um, I recently became an uncle, my sister and uh, oh, congrats, congrats, child, thank you. It, I will say um, it is mildly less dramatic that I, now that I have two kids. I think if I had become an uncle before I had kids of my own, it would have been felt more like a change in status. Instead, it's like, oh yeah, it's cool. I have a niece also now. Uh, but we had I had a bottle of champagne with with my sister and brother in law. Uh, just some, uh, not just, but I had a bottle of Laurent Perrier, which is one of my favorite kind of big grower or not big grower <laughs> definitely not a grower uh big uh negociant uh, big producers there in champagne that was lovely and, and of course just um a great opportunity to celebrate um and then i think the other thing that i had recently that i really enjoyed uh was finishing out washington wine month at the end of march uh, i had the opportunity to uh host an event uh, uh at uh, my friend uh, aaron's restaurant sorrel which i've done some events at in the past and he and I uh, kind of put together this little tasting of some wines from the Yakima Valley. Um, and in particular, the 2017 Cabernet Franc from um, Andrew Will, uh, which was a really beautiful wine and uh, was a crowd favorite, which was super fun. So, yeah, you know, drinking wine like I always do. Not yet watching baseball, but uh, give me a few yeah. hours and we'll get that underway, too. <laughs> cool. How about you, Adam? So uh, I had this cool opportunity to go and guest lecture at Yale yesterday to a bunch of seniors Ooh. taking a seminar on uh, booze, which was cool. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it was really interesting to hear a lot of their questions. So one of their questions was, or I guess one of the topics they're, ta- they're, they're, they're tackling um, Osa in at Yale right now is like, is Tiki problematic? Like, mm. can you still say Tiki? Like, what would you say? Instead? Right. Are we appropriating Tiki as a concept? Yeah, and, but I feel like there've been books to that end too, and people reclaiming it. And it's interesting to see these, like, you know, basically like uh 21 year olds who just started drinking you know trying to discuss this well in because this is the professor that leads is actually a philosophy professor uh professor jessica specter and so um you're like it's just it was interesting to hear them talk about it without kind of ever even having been to one of these bars before they don't have the kind of historical and cultural context because this all predates their drinking age or even presumed yeah, not drinking it was super interesting <laughs> so uh so that was really fun and we talked about sort of um cocktails and culture and how cocktails fit into how you're culturally defined 
you know, like what is like that cocktail say about you? Like, what are you projecting by having that specific order? And what is the person maybe judging you for? Like, and is every bar with like, you know, palm trees and leaves and a tropical vibe? Is that a tiki bar? Like, are they hearkening back to the tiki bar? What right. Or that? now are they tropical or are they right. like, what is it? What Sunken Harbor Cl- call, Club calls itself, which is like post tiki, which I right. guess is still tiki, which. So anyways, that was interesting. But then the simulation is broken. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all broken. But so uh, the other uh, professor in the class is John Clark Gennetti, who has been on the Cocktail College podcast, who um, also owns 116 Crown in New Haven, which is uh, considered to be the best cocktail bar in Connecticut. It's a very good cocktail bar. Um, and so we went back to the bar after class because uh, he wanted to, to let me have a, a, a cocktail or two before I headed back down to the city. So I had uh, his martini, which is nice. what he came on the Cocktail College you know, podcast to talk about, which was really cool. And then I also had a champagne cocktail because he happened to be teaching a class to MBAs that night. And he always gives them that cocktail as sort of the first drink he ever he he has when he does his classes inside the bar because it's sort of like one of the original cocktails right so to show like what a cocktail is this idea of just like bitters sugar and then usually you know a lot of time it goes like wine or cognac or things like that so i love a champagne cocktail one of my old colleagues kat kinsman was very big on the french 75 and i always think of they're good yeah, yeah champagne cocktails are good um so yeah so that was fun um but one of the one of the subjects that came out of class that uh i thought would be fun for us to talk about and especially given was that your background um having been at food and wine before here is this idea of like kitsch that's been sort of growing in the in the bar and restaurant space both in terms of design and drinks and in this idea of kitsch you know basically what we talked about in class is that a lot of it, it feels like it's it's this model that a lot of bars and restaurants are moving into very quickly because it gets very quick press you're guaranteed to get social media and then you get someone who takes a picture of like that kitschy drink or that kitschy space but then the question is like does a place like that have staying power, right? Like, or is it just a place that like you only go to when you have someone else who's never been there before, but once you've been like, do you go back? Is the product that good? Um, and I don't know. Cause I feel like there are places that do it really, that do kitsch really well. And I think we'd be insulting them by calling it kitsch, but you could put it in the, you know, the white lab codes, maybe places that echo Florence or things like that, Venice, what have you. But then there's other places that like do kitsch, to an extreme that's actually like not only bad in terms of just like the execution of the cardinal center, but it's also offensive, right? To cultures, et cetera. Tiki being one of those that people are wrestling with. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious first to start with you, Osa. Like, what do you think about this sort? Like, is this a trend? Like, are we seeing this? And did you see this at Food and Wine prior? And sort of what do you make of this whole movement? Well, I do think that a lot of this, and I know you and I chatted about this a little bit too, has to do with post-pandemic wanting going out to just feel like such an experience. You know, we just, we all like ate food out of cardboard boxes for two years. And now when you go out, like you want to, like I found myself posting photos of my food again, where I feel like I'd kind of stopped doing that for a while. And it's like, now you want to like show people that you're going out and doing things and seeing stuff that isn't just your coffee table. And so I feel like part of that is an excitement to just be exposed to things that are visually attractive and fun at like a primal, like human level. But I also think that there is, I think Instagram is a huge part of this. And I feel like it's something that has only gotten, it's something that's only intensified over the past, like, year in terms of restaurant openings and that being kind of a a way to pull people in because 
that's what restaurants are relying on increasingly is like people posting photos and people tagging and whatnot. Um, and yeah, and I think it's, I think that some places do a good job and that's when it feels less like kitsch and maybe more like branding or a sense of place. Yeah. And then there are places, right, right. Or just places where, you know, maybe the owners are actually from there and like are referencing their own culture and have like brought in, you know, pieces from where, for example, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, I'm from Boston and there is a bakery called Tate there and the owner, Sarit Orr, is Israeli and she furnishes the space. All of the spaces have like a lot of beautiful antiques from Tel Aviv. And in my mind, that's not kitsch because she's like referencing her own background and her own country. And so she's kind of decorating with those things and it feels, you know, it feels appropriate. Um, but I think that that is, again, I think a lot of the question comes to like, who's the person who's owning the business and decorating the space, but also how many consumers are really thinking about that? Exactly. Like who really cares at the end of the day, like who's paying attention other than journalists and you and I. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Zach, what do you think? I, well, I think there's two interesting things here going on um, kind of to, to add on to what I was saying, which is one, I, I definitely think there's something to the idea that in this exact moment, people are definitely keen to feel transported by what they're eating and drinking and, and being in a space that allows for that makes the whole mental jump a lot easier than, you know, trying to transport yourself just with a drink or just with um, a, you know, an item that you uh, pulled out of said cardboard box in your in your living room. So that's part of it. But I also think that part of it is just we are we are in this period of time where um the the sort of it feels to me at least and I'm you know I'm not the expert on this that either of you are in some sense that the dominant aesthetic right now is very much this kind of weird hodgepodge of like sort of this longing to go back in time um you know you see mm -hmm. you know kind of we're in this strong kind of retro phase um for like a lot of 90s stuff in particular but even going back you know further than that and a lot of these bars are and restaurants are in one way or another kind of uh centered around that idea of going back in time and also where like we kind of came out of this i think long phase of of pushing things forward in food and drink to a point where it's not that there are no frontiers to explore. I think in some ways, you know, that anytime you feel like that's the case, you're proven horribly wrong that there are suddenly all these other things uh, that are out there to try. But that it does, I think we do kind of feel like we've reached this weird kind of end of an expansion of what, you know, people are eating and drinking. And now it's more about kind of trying to get people to come, you know, come for the the experience and if that i mean that's always been true i guess I, I i should be clear on that but that that experience needs to have for lack of a better word like a very simple hook and i think that sometimes too when you talk about whether it's you know tiki or tropical whether you talk about you know we've talked about it on the podcast with speakeasies whether we've talked about it with you know a 50s themed diner and a kind of different end of the spectrum there's almost a way in which that's a kind of expectation setting for for people that makes them if not comfortable, at least clear on what they're going for. And I think that, you know, we're in this page where maybe it's also because people are going back out for the first time over the last next, you know, over these last however many months, a lot of people didn't dine out, didn't go out to bars for very, very much or at all. And so giving people kind of a clear set of expectations and a clear understanding of what they, what they can, can expect to get may be particularly valuable in this moment. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I, the thing that I think is really <clears throat> interesting it's a point that Oset was making about like when it 
either when, when it feels like authentic and when it doesn't. Cause I also do think that like Americans have this obsession with authenticity. Do you know what I mean? Like, Oh, it has to be authentic. Like, I want the authentic pad tie. And you're like, maybe just have the pad tie this place makes. You know what I mean? Like you're insulting them by asking them for the authentic pad tie. But then like, we're also very quick to like, just jump into an experience without questioning who's behind it. Right. Like, I mean, I don't want to call anyone out, but Oset showed me this, uh, this oh, restaurant. We can, we can talk oh, about it. Oh, let's talk well, about it. I think. Look, it's this place is modeled after a supper club in Wisconsin. We won't, we won't, you know, name names, but it's modeled after that, and that existed in the like 1930s, is what it was, right? Yeah. Which I feel or 50, like or 50s. I think was it was 50s. 50s. Yeah, yeah. It looks like the 50s. You know, and it's like. And it's in Bushwick now. Yes, and it parodies Middle Eastern culture. So it's really easy to put these, you know, pieces together. But anyway, I... And the people who own it are not Middle Eastern, (laughs) so far as we can tell. (laughs) And I've been, and as, you know, a first-generation Turkish-American, I was like, so there are fezes everywhere and belly dancer, like, references. And just has, like, a lot of kind of, like... Sultan iconography. They and literally frankly, have a room called the Sultan. Right. Room. And so, well, oh, oh, now we're just, anyway. So for me, You're I was. You're only going to know if you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I just, I was confused. I was like, am I missing something? Is this, you know, and then I think at the end of the day, I was like, no, like as, as a Turkish person, I'm just not into this. This is kitsch that doesn't work for me. I yeah. do find this kind of like off-putting, I guess is the right word. It just makes me kind of like, oh, you know, this is not so different to me than like wearing a sombrero like for Halloween, things like that. Right. You know, we're just like, we're not doing that. And I feel like the problem is that like for most consumers, they might not even do the research to realize who's behind it. So they're like, oh, maybe this is what this is supposed to be. And like, right. this is authentic because I have a weird view of what the world looks like and blah, you know what I mean? Like, I, and that's where it's problematic. Mm-hmm. And, but the, but the other issue is that, but, but they're going to go because like these photos are like dope as shit on Instagram. Correct. And know? it does, it photographs well, but it's just kind of, and I think frankly, a lot of people probably don't think that hard about it. They're just no. like, this is fun. Like it's an experience. This is great. And you know, some people will think about it more because they have a personal connection to it. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think the same could be said for cocktails, right? That like you find these cocktails as well that are really they're they're very ostentatious in their presentation, but they're disgusting in their actual consumption, mm-hmm, right? Like mm-hmm. they're not made well, but like whatever they're doing they're in they're, a weird vessel. Yeah. They have like a bunch of things on fire. Like a rubber ducky or, floating sure, on top yeah, of them. Yeah. You know, like, like, <laughs> exactly. Like pizzazz without the substance. And I do feel like we're seeing more and more and more of this. I, you know, the more sort of releases that we get, the more, you know, the more times I hear about things opening, I feel like it's just a lot of this. And I wonder if it's just because people think it's easier. In a world where things are either ugly, delicious, or have a lot of pizzazz but also aren't very good. I just want something that's neutral and good. <laughs> I want I want yeah. neutrally enjoyable drinks. I drink. Yeah. I don't even need a garnish. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Like, toss, just make it good. Yeah. Toss the garnish and just make it great. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to ask you guys a question, though, that comes to this point, I think, which is that, you know, I've had the sense for a while that there is possible you know, there is there is sort of a business case to be made for the kind of place you're describing. Maybe not, you know, sort of borderline offensive, but just in terms of being kitschy or otherwise kind of garish in a way that's going to bring people in, but but not keep to them To be clear, this back. place has been open for years. I'm not like actively offended. Just, just <laughs> making that known. Yeah, yeah. It's been years. Sure, <laughs> like, sure, sure. You know, many we're just, years. We're just letting it know, like, yeah. not cool, bro. Yeah, yeah. like I didn't love it when it opened like four years ago. Anyway, carry on. But, but in any case, the point I'm trying to make is, is it possible that there is actually like, there is actually a viable 
strategy here that makes sense in terms of like, yeah, you may not be a restaurant that relies on or a bar that relies on a bunch of regulars, right? Like, you know, that people are going to come in, maybe they're only going to come in once for the, um, you know, for the, for the famous drink or to take their pictures with the goofy decor or whatever. But you know that in a, certainly in a city like New York, there are enough people who will come through the door once every night to make it all work. And I think about like, you know, that New York in particular, I feel like has uh, many of these kinds of places. There's, I mean, uh, what's the place? There's the place of the frozen hot chocolate. Serendipity, I think is what it's called. Uh, maybe it no longer exists. That's dating myself. Do you mean myself. Max Brenner's? Oh, no, I, Serendipity. Never mind. I think, Serendipity 2, I don't know. It was a thing. It was in a movie, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. Um but even, but even I think about this in a way that like the the restaurant industry has on the kind of the opposite end of the scale. You think about like your your very kind of high end special occasion restaurants, and those places largely succeed because they know they're only going to get people to come through like once a year, right, for an anniversary, a birthday, some other big life event. And obviously, they have a higher, much higher check average than one of these bars or restaurants. But they also are kind of like we know there's enough of a population mass that we'll see the very occasional utility in coming here, and. You can kind of make it work. And in some ways, it might be easier to make it work if your theme is something so kind of ridiculous than to open like, I mean, because, you know, the honest truth is as much as I totally share your desire for like neutral good, neutral good restaurants and bars fail all the fucking time because it's really hard to keep people interested. I'm interested. (laughs) I mean, I think I think that's. Look, I think that's that is true to a point. I think a lot of them. I think the reason the neutrals bars fail fail a lot too, though, is because also the product is pretty neutral. It's pretty mediocre. Like I think you know, if you just have a really well done bar with high quality drinks and and good wine and things, like, people will come. The neighborhood restaurant, right? The concept of the dependable neighborhood restaurant, there, like now. Walters. Correct. You could say Walters is kind of neutral, right? Agree. Or like you know, to me, I think of like Evelina Walters. Like those are my neighborhood restaurants yeah. that I like. And there's there's nothing kitsch about them. No, they're very neutral. I'm sure there's places like that in Seattle. It's Zach, I'm supposed to come at some point, but you know it's been yeah, we'll it's see. COVID. Uh, but but yeah, I mean you know what I mean. Like like I, you know you know what I think is probably the ultimate neutral restaurant, and people are gonna at me like crazy, but I really do think it's the ultimate neutral restaurant in New York City. Oh dear, Union Square Cafe. Oh, I love Union Square. Cafe. I love it, but you know what I'm saying? It's no, like, it is. No, it's I think that's, just no, I... fucking a solid restaurant. It's there's nothing. That they're doing that's trying to be over the top. It's just a great, great wine list, great cocktails, beautiful space. It's comfort food in yes. restaurant format. I mean, the Milanese at Union Square Cafe, it's like delightful. Right. The wine list is dependable. Everyone is knowledgeable. The service is great. Yeah. It's just great. And those are and those we are actually you, restaurants, I think. Yes, we do. Those restaurants, I think, that have real staying power. Agree. But, but the flip side to that is, that's all well and good, but telling someone that you're going to open the next Union Square Cafe is like, okay, great. Cool. That's I'm going idea. to. I'm going to open but the like, Union Square Cafe. But like, you don't, but like, for every plate, for, for like, Danny Meyer is a, is a, and his restaurants are remarkable outliers, even for New York City. Like, I think this is all a really good point, but like, I worked at restaurants and for, or, and at, and for restaurant companies that had, you know, very their version good. of the Union Square Cafe. Yeah, they had their version of Union Square Cafe that had great neighborhood restaurants, things like that. And like sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail. I don't mean to say that there's like you know, uh, you know, the restaurant industry, the bar industry is very, very challenging. It goes through as we've spent the last two years on the podcast talking about. It can be buffeted by these you know massive global uh, circumstances that it has no control over and is particularly vulnerable to in the case of a pandemic. But I think my point is more like. I can kind of understand the the 
almost the business case and, and and the sort of logic behind, well, sure, we could open a place that does everything pretty well, but like we might be the kind of place that like when it, we close in two and a half years, 35 people are so torn up about it, but that's not a business. Like like the 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 two 200 people in your neighborhood who really go there once a month, it's not a business. Like that's just the reality of this industry and that it it sucks in some ways that it's much easier these days to get attention with something garish, flashy, you know, ridiculous, over the top, gimmicky, but you can at least make an argument that that's a business model that makes a certain kind of sense. And, and I don't know, the other ones are just not to say that you can't do it. Obviously great restaurants open all the time and they can be extremely kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it other than like matter of fact. And that's awesome. And I don't mean to say like, I prefer the other stuff. I just understand in this current landscape that we've described why any kind of entrepreneur, any kind of restaurateur or whatever is like, at least got to think about, you know, the thing we talked about at the top, how do you get people to come in and take pictures? No, of I shit? think that's true. And and I think that, and I think that does mean that you do that. I think that is the answer to sort of this conversation, which is the reason we're seeing more of them is because it works. It's, yeah, it works. It does. I mean, it's, it's what sort of people are asking for. And this is, this is sort of the question that I asked the class yesterday, but about a different topic, which is the espresso martini, right? So mm-hmm. one of the women in the class said to me, the reason she's ordering espresso martinis is because there's, they're showing up on, on cocktail lists, right? And so she sees them more, so she orders them. And then when sure. you talk to bartenders, you ask them why they're making professional martinis and saying because people are ordering them more, mm-hmm. right? And it's, again, this is a chicken and the egg question, right? Like, are we seeing more kitsch restaurants because people take pictures of them more and so we think there's demand for them? Or is there demand for them because that's what's out there in the market right now and it feels like this is that cultural moment? Like, who knows? I don't know who, like, decided that we're going to do all of this all of a sudden or who started the, this cultural movement. But it definitely is something that now does seem like if you do a restaurant like this, you will get press, we are guilty of right. Are we guilty of it? Who knows? Probably. Like you will get press. You will get people in the door. You'll have influencers who post on Instagram because it feels like they've gone somewhere that's different than Union Square Cafe. To be fair, it seems like it's like a wanderlust type feeling, right? And you're gonna get a lot of likes on your photos. Yeah. Well, like your picture of a well-made, ungarnished, you know. Manhattan is not going to get you a whole lot on social media, but your picture of something that has, you know, the aforementioned rubber duck floating in it certainly is going to get traction. And that's true on both sides of that equation for the bar and for the person who's posting the picture. But for people who are really depressed by this conversation, all I can tell you is that the the really smart women and men that I spoke with yesterday informed me that Instagram is chuggy and okay. that they will that their generation does not do this. <laughs> So we, we, I don't, I don't believe them because I said yes, you do. You just do it on TikTok, but that's what they tried to claim wow. that they are not in it for the kitsch. So who knows? Only time will tell. That is just humbling <laughs> in so many ways. I mean, I yeah. recently found out the youths are still on Snapchat. So the youths are on Snapchat. Yeah, I know the youths in the office told me. I was like, wow. Yeah, I'm not on Snapchat. I'm not on. I haven't been on Snapchat since college. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that it was over. It exists still. The youths are using it. The don't youths. worry, guys. I'll cut this whole part of the conversation out so that no one has to know just how old we are. No, I like it. All right. Well, with that, Oset, thank you for being an amazing guest host. Thanks we're going to see you on Friday, too. You're Great. coming back for the Friday episode. Amazing. So, you know, because Joanna's out on vacation for a little while. Hope she's having a good time in New Orleans. Um, but I will talk to you guys on Friday. Sounds good. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast.
It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.